Bridget Sheeran is about to start a walking tour in Glasnevin Cemetery, which goes on every hour. This time of the year, once the sort of the tourist season comes in, it's every hour. Excellent. But generally speaking, during the winter, it would be about three tours and a should day. Pe- should people book to be on this, or can uh, they just turn up? No, you can book, but well, maybe when it gets into the real high season, you might be better booking. Excellent. You know what I mean? But uh, other than that, you know, you can uh, turn up. Most of the tours are the general historical tour, but we also have what we call a dead interesting tour and that is just new now and that's visiting the graves of people that we wouldn't sort of normally talk about on the tour but interesting people at the same time who in their own lives either did something remarkable whether it was that they buried their wives twice or whatever it was well you know we uh, yeah we have interesting people yeah the tour if someone comes on it how long should they allow when they're well, scheduled definitely definitely an hour and a half right and uh, just to say that you're all very welcome to Glasnevin Museum and Cemetery. My name is Bridget, and I'd just like to ask people here, whereabouts have you come from this morning? Are you from somewhere outside Ireland? County Down. You're from County Down. You're very welcome. Scotland. Scotland. Oh, very welcome. I have a very interesting Scottish person uh, to show you on the tour. Limerick. And Limerick. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, A little bit of background information on how Glastonevin first began. It first opened its gates in 1832, a tiny gate which is still way down at the end of the cemetery. Uh, It's only about that size and that wide. And the very first person buried at Glastonevin Cemetery, an 11-year-old boy, he died from tuberculosis. He's buried right beside that gate. The cemetery was founded by Daniel O'Connell. He's buried under this tower here behind me. He founded this cemetery because he wanted to have a cemetery where people of all religions and people with no religion could be buried and buried with dignity. It began as nine acres and today we have 124 acres. We've land here but we also have land on the far side of the road behind the red brick houses over there. The tour will not go over there but Some of you may be familiar with some of the people buried over there, and I'll just mention their names. Luke Kelly of that famous ballad group called the Dubliners. You may have seen uh, the film My Left Foot. Well, Christy Brown, it's his life story. He's he's buried over there. There's also Liam Whelan from that famous Manchester United team that uh, he was killed in the Munich Air disaster that happened more than 55 years ago. Also over there, there's a plot of Irish rebels who fought in the 1916 Rising and beside them, a plot of the British soldiers who fought against them. Rosie Hackett is over there. They called the latest bridge in Dublin after Rosie. She played an important part in the 1913 lockout and the 1916 rising. There's 1.3 million people living in Dublin and buried here at Glasnevin are 1.5 million people. There are more people at rest out here on this beautiful sunny morning than there is living or walking or rushing around Dublin this very day. And 800,000 of them are buried in graves that have no headstones and we'll talk about that later on. Uh, We have here some of our rebels, some of our uh, uh, politicians and statesmen. We have people from the world of art, literature, drama and sport. The majority buried here are just ordinary Dublin people who built this city. It began during the reign of Queen Victoria, developing as a Victorian garden cemetery. Now a garden cemetery was a place where people came, not just to bury their dead. They 
came just like yourselves. They came to enjoy a morning or afternoon stroll, admiring the sculpture, the architecture, and all the beautiful landscaping that we have around the cemetery. You know, what I'm going to say next seems very, very odd. But back in the 19th century, people would pack a picnic basket on a Sunday morning and they'd come here to Glasnevin Cemetery for an afternoon picnic, admiring all of the things that I've just mentioned. Now, they don't have to do it anymore because we have our own restaurant, okay? So now, we're starting the tour here at the grave of Roger Casement. Now, Roger Casement, he was born here in Sandy Cove in Dublin in 1864. On his father's side, he was of Protestant Ulster stock. And in his early life, he worked for the British Consular Service. He served in West Africa, that part of West Africa that was a possession of Leopold II of Belgium at the time. He also served among the Putumayo Indians of a remote Amazonian region in South America. While working in these places, Roger witnessed some of the most horrific human rights abuses against the native people working in the rubber industry. He investigated and reported on the abuses. He won international respect and George V of England knighted him and he became Sir Roger Casement. But Roger was basically a nationalist at heart and two years after being knighted in 1913 he's back here and he's joining a movement called the Volunteer Movement and helping to found it and when World War I breaks out he's in Germany looking for help for an Irish rising. He does not get what he goes out looking for, he only gets a very very small quantity of arms and ammunition which come back and board a trawler called the Odd to Tralee Bay. The Royal Navy know it's on its way so they intercept it and the German captain, Captain Spindler, he gets his crew off the boat and destroys the boat rather than let the arms and ammunition into the hands of the British. Roger himself, he comes back separately on board his submarine to, uh, to Bannistrand, also down in Kerry. The volunteers go down from Dublin to pick him up, have an accident on the way. Three of them lose their lives and instead he's picked up by the Royal Irish Constabulary, the police force of the day. They find a Berlin Rail ticket in his pocket. Well, that gives the game away. He ends up in the Old Bailey in London. He's tried for treason. He's found guilty of high treason. And Roger is executed on the 3rd of August, 1916. Before his execution, Roger says, don't bury me here in this terrible place. Bring me back and bury me at Murloc Bay along the North Antrim coast, a beautiful place that he had fond childhood memories of. He was orphaned at 13. He was reared by his relatives in Ulster. He fell in love with the glens of Antrim and all of the surrounding area and the people, and that's where Roger wanted to be buried. It did not happen. They buried him at Pentonville Prison for 49 years. One year before the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising, his remains were released. There was a state funeral. He was buried here at Glasnevin Cemetery. And Eamon de Valera, the only surviving leader from the 1916 Rising, who was now President of Ireland, he gave the oration here at the graveside. Well, you may wonder why he never went back to Murloc Bay, the place he requested. Well, one of the reasons was that his remains were released on condition he'd be buried in the south of Ireland. What is important is, as well is that Roger is the only one 
of the 16 executed leaders to be buried at Glastonevin Cemetery. All the others are buried at a place called Arbor Hill Military Cemetery and the other over, further over the city. And uh, Thomas Kent, he's buried down in Cork. And as you can see, he's lost his title. He's no longer Sir. He's just ordinary Roger Casement. And just before I leave here, see this absolutely beautiful Celtic cross. It's called, it's a revival cross because it was a cross that was carved, you know, in the middle of the 19th century when they were now beginning to sort of revive this whole sort of idea of uh, they were putting uh, and putting Celtic crosses over the graves of people who had died. Uh, this cross is beautiful. It's carved from limestone and it's actually the work of James Pierce, the father of Patrick and Willie Pierce, both executed for their part in the 1916 Rising. And we actually have two headstones here at Glasnevin, carved by Willie Pierce, Patrick's uh, brother, who was also executed in 1916. I'd just like to say you're very, very uh, welcome to Glasnevin uh, Museum and Cemetery. Very here is Kevin Barry. Now, Kevin, he's immortalised in ballad. He was 18 years of age, a medical student. He was of Dublin Carlow background. He was a member of the IRA. He was the youngest member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And on the morning of one of his me medical exams, he volunteered to take part in an ambush down at North King Street. The aim of the ambush was to get guns from the British Army who were collecting bread at a bakery. Now, Kevin had every intention of going back in the afternoon and doing his medical exams. Now during the ambush his gun jammed and Kevin went in under the army lorry to unjam his gun. At that very point in time his comrades were forced to retreat. An elderly lady who loved to sit on her chair right out on the pavement and watch everything that happens sees him under the lorry, is convinced the lorry will go over Kevin and kill him. In order to save him, cries out to the soldiers, there's a young fella in there, take him out, he'd be killed. Kevin is taken out, Kevin is arrested and Kevin is imprisoned. Now I really don't think that Kevin ever thought for one moment he'd spend very long in prison because Kevin wrote out to one of his medical friends, Jerry McAleer, and this is what Kevin Kevin said in that letter. He said, tell Mrs. Tippings the landlady, I'll pay my rent as soon as I get out of prison. But Kevin was never going to get out. Kevin was being accused of the killing of a young British soldier named Private Whitehead. Kevin was tortured. He would receive four days medical help for the torture he underwent. Kevin still refused to give information. Kevin took his newspaper. He read it for the duration of the hearing. And Kevin put up no defence. And Kevin Kevin was secretly court-martialed. There was no independent witness at his trial and Kevin was hanged on the 1st of November 1920. He was the first to be executed since the execution of the 1916 rebel leaders and it happened the day after Terence McSweeney, Lord Mayor of Cork, the day after his remains came home from England. So if I tell you the worst part of the War of Independence took place after Kevin's execution, you can well imagine why. There was a huge outpouring of grief on that occasion. We're going to head over this way to Daniel O'Connell. So this is the final resting place of the man who founded Glastonevin Cemetery, uh, Daniel O'Connell. Daniel, he's known all over the world. He's known in street name. He's known in monument. If you go to Melbourne in Australia, you're going to find a monument to Daniel O'Connell. If you go to the South Island in New Zealand, uh, you'll find the very first suspension bridge that they ever built, and they built it in uh, 1880. They called it the Daniel O'Connell Bridge, and it is still called that to this very 
day. So this man, who's known all around the world, was born down at Carus Ivine in Kerry in 1775. He was born into a Catholic landowning family. You had very few of those at the time. Catholics had been dispossessed of their land. He had a wealthy uncle, though, who had good trading links with the continent. And uh, it is alleged, did a bit of smuggling as well. That part of Ireland was ideal if you're into the bit of smuggling and bringing in the extra barrel of wine or whatever it may be. Uh, he had enough money to educate Daniel in France. Daniel was there during the French Revolution. He saw some of the worst of it. And that decided for Daniel he'd never use physical force to achieve his political aims. Daniel grew up to be a lawyer. Daniel O'Connell was actually probably the best lawyer Ireland ever had. He knew his law so well, he had huge understanding for his clients. And when he was in difficulties, Daniel could move things about. On one particular occasion, when he had to defend a man, and he knew this man was not guilty of the crime he was being accused of, Daniel thought it would be good if he could say that he had known the man since the man's birth. He hadn't. So this is what Daniel did. Daniel got a cradle. He told the man to lie in the cradle. He told him to lie in the cradle for a couple of hours. Daniel went over every so often and rocked the cradle. And Daniel went into court and he said, I saw this man in the cradle. I even rocked his cradle. Nobody questioned Daniel and Daniel won the day. Daniel also grew up to be a politician. What's significant about him as a politician is that he was the first political figure in Ireland to gather behind him a mass movement of the ordinary people in peaceful protest. People like Gandhi and Martin Luther King would copy what Daniel O'Connell had uh, done. Daniel empowered people who had been disempowered. And if you joined his Catholic association for one penny a month, you actually got the experience of what it was like to be part of a democratic movement. And if he were alive today, he'd be all over our television screens because he would be regarded as a human rights activist. He campaigned for the abolition of slavery, the independence of Poland, and the emancipation of the Jewish people. He was so well known that kings and princes all around the world would write to Daniel looking for his autograph. He'd give it if they ruled their country fairly. He refused it otherwise. And Daniel was actually, in 1831, asked to go forward as the future king of Belgium and Daniel by three Belgian parliamentarians and he refused the invitation. In Ireland we called him the liberator because he was a man who by peaceful means gained Catholic emancipation in 1829. Now Irish Catholics and English Catholics uh, if elected to Parliament they could now take their seats and the Parliament was in Westminster. Uh, we were ruled directly from London as a result of the Act of Union of 1801. Daniel would now sit in Parliament as an MP for Clare. He then tried to get the Parliament back here to Ireland by peaceful means. He organised monster meetings all around the country where people came miles and miles to attend those meetings, putting peaceful pressure on the British government to restore our Parliament. The British government worried about those meetings. They worried that they turn into a rising or a rebellion, so they banned the meeting he had scheduled for Clontar, just out the road there. Daniel feared that if he went ahead with the meeting, now that it was banned by the government, he was feared there could be bloodshed. So Daniel cancelled the meeting. And by cancelling that meeting, Daniel lost huge support. He opened the gates 
for the physical force movements to come on stage and to stage a rising. So we have the famous 1848 uh, Young Ireland Rising, which was a failure in military terms. And then along comes the Great Famine of uh, 1845. And the one man who would have been able to do something had he lived longer about that famine was Daniel O'Connell. But his health was badly in decline. Do you know, on his very last day in Westminster, he was the saddest and sorriest sight. On that day, he was very ill, and he was once more pleading for something to be done about the famine victims. On that day, Daniel predicted that if, he didn't, uh, if they didn't do something, two million Irish people would die. His plea fell on deaf ears. One MP described him as a fumbling old man standing at his bench. Well, we all know one million died and two million emigrated. Had they not emigrated, many of them too would have died. Daniel was dying. His doctor told him to go on a holiday to the sun. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome and he died on his way. Now when he died, they brought his remains back. They buried him away down at the end of the cemetery. He was down there for 22 years while Glasnevin, which is a, a, a charity, fundraise, got builders and designers and built this monument behind me here. And at the end of the 22 years, Daniel got another funeral all over again. They brought his remains up and placed them in the crypt. The tower behind me is modelled on the towers of the ancient monasteries, which were 30 metres high. This is 51 metres high. Do you see that cross just over there? That cross is dedicated to all of those buried at Glasnevin Cemetery who died as a result of the famine. Would you believe we have 22,000 people buried in Glasnevin who died as a result of the famine. They died in workhouses. This cross was unveiled just in, in 2016. And on that very day, 50 ambassadors from 50 countries all around the world placed a wreath at the base of that cross. Okay, thank you. Uh, just to mention this, just because uh, you may be interested in coming back and going on other types of tours here, uh, this whole area here that we're going to go into now is associated with James Joyce, you know, one of our great writers, and uh, you know his book Ulysses. Uh, well, there's an episode in that called the Heydays episode, and it's about the the funeral, the fictional funeral of a man named Paddy Dignam, and this is the chapel here that uh, the supposed funeral uh, uh, came to, and the funeral procession would have sort of come on down this way and in the book there's reference to Daniel O'Connell there's reference you know he refers to many of the people that are buried all around here typical Victorian garden cemetery and listen if you have time later on you might like to stroll to the very end of that avenue because when you do you'll arrive at what was the second gate into Glasnevin Cemetery and on the other side of it there's a famous pub called Cavnes Pub and Cavnes Pub is as old as the cemetery and there's a story behind it and the whole uh, the story is that on the day the first burial took place here the young boy 11 years of age uh, the owner of the, uh, it, it wasn't a pub at the time, he just lived there, he owned a hotel here in Dublin, uh, but he looked out the window and he saw the burial and he just thought to himself, uh, this is going to be happening every day from here on. And he was a good businessman, you see, and he sort of thought, I could make a few bit of money out of this. So he decided he'd try and get refreshments, you know, in for the, the, the mourners. Uh, but what he opened, in fact, was a pub. Now, initially, the relationship with the cemetery was good, uh, but, and it 
was so good that they actually sold ale, which was brewed by Daniel O'Connell's sons over near where Guinness is today. But then the relationship got sour because one day the caretaker, the superintendent, was on his way around and outside the gates down there he found two coffins unattended. He went looking for the mourners and he went into the pub and there they were totally intoxicated. Now Glasnevin was a new cemetery, a non-denominational cemetery. It was all of this and uh, they couldn't have this. So what they decided to do was that uh, if you came from seven miles radius of the GPO, which is in the centre of Dublin, uh, you had to be buried before 12 o'clock in the day. And the whole idea was get the people in and get them out. And then, you know what I mean, uh, they could go drinking for whatever length of time they wanted. And, uh, but if you were from the rural parts and you were being buried in Glasnevin, well, you could be buried in the afternoon. And would you believe? It's still the same at Glass and Evan. They've yeah. never changed it. And if you're a visitor to Dublin, uh, you'll always notice Dublin people say things like, they don't say necessarily, are you going to the pub? They say, are you going for a jar? And the reason, they say that that all began down there at that part of the cemetery, because the grave diggers were not supposed to be drinking while they were digging graves. But of course, they would be tempted to drink, and they would go up, and they would knock on, they'd bang the shovels against the wall of the pub. And the woman who owned the pub at the time, uh, there was a little hatch in the wall, and they'd put in their shovel, and she'd hand out the drink on the shovel. Well, they'd go off to the grave, they'd drink the drink, and then the glasses would end up in the grave. They would never be brought back to the pub. She was losing her fortune. So she decided this cannot go on. So what she did was, uh, she said, you have to bring your own utensil with you when you come to work in the morning if you want to get a drink in the pub. So the, in those days, you had two pound pots of jam. And when the pot of jam was finished, or the jam, and the jam jar was washed and cleaned, they would take it to, to the work with them. And then they'd go up to, to, the, to the hatch. And they, so that's like the way it began, because one digger would say to the other, listen, are you going for a jar? Uh, this whole area here was once part of what was called the poor ground at Glasnevin Cemetery. I said to you earlier on, there's 800,000 people in unmarked graves here at Glasnevin Cemetery. But I do want to emphasise that Glasnevin has a record of every single person buried here. We have the most amazing records. Of, uh, every, we have records of every single person buried here in Glasnevin. Uh, we have even plots where, for example, somebody who dies in a doorway, maybe in Grafton Street or someplace like that and are brought, they're brought here to be buried at Glasnevin and people might only know their first name or something like that. Well we have a special plot, it's called the Alone Plot and uh, there uh, people are buried and we just, even if we only have the first name, it actually goes up, you know what I mean uh, it, it, it was Willie Birmingham who had that plot, you know, established and this behind me here is the cholera pit at Glasnevin Cemetery. Uh, cholera hit Dublin in 1849 and 11,000 of the people who died from cholera are buried here in this pit and quick lime was placed over their remains and look who's buried in the cholera pit our great statesman Charles Stuart Parnell now he was born into a Protestant landowning family at Avondale in Wicklow he was one year old he was learning to walk when Daniel O'Connell died and 29 years later he will 
walk on when he's elected a member of parliament for Meath, he'll walk onto the stage that Daniel O'Connell has vacated. And when he does, Daniel O'Connell has got Catholic emancipation. Now Charles Stuart Parnell turns to sort of sorting out and helping the tenant farmers who have huge issues. They have no security on their land. They have to pay exorbitant rents and they and if they don't manage to pay them, uh, they are evicted from the, from their land. And they have no hope of owning the land that was once owned by their ancestors. He becomes president of the Land League. There's a land war, but in time a series of land acts will pass through the Parliament in Westminster, which will improve their situation. He was also the man uh, who wanted to get the Parliament back here to Ireland, what Daniel O'Connell had failed uh, to uh, achieve. Uh, he takes a different approach to Daniel O'Connell. He establishes a tightly knit parliamentary party in Westminster, who all vote the same way and they'll vote with whichever of the parties is prepared to introduce a home rule bill for Ireland. Sadly he does not live to see the third home rule bill reach the statute book in 1914. He does see the first home rule bill introduced into Westminster and thrown out uh, and he is not alive for the second home rule bill which does manage to pass the House of Commons but is thrown out by the House of Lords and as I said he's dead by the time uh, he's well dead he's dead by the time the second home rule bill is put to Parliament he's well dead by the time the third home rule bill reached the statute book. Uh, he was also the man who overcame many difficulties, one of them being that it was inferred that he condoned the assassination of the Chief Secretary and the Under Secretary here in the Phoenix Park. He managed to clear his name. He reached the highest point in his career then. He was known as the Uncrowned King of Ireland. And then his private life got in the way of his public life. His relationship with a married woman called Catherine O'Shea, uh, whose husband was a member of his parliamentary party. When news of that became public, there was uproar. Because these were Victorian times and it was frowned on. And Gladstone, who regarded him as the greatest politician of the 19th century, uh, asked him to step down from leadership of the party and let it all pass over. Parnell was a proud man. He refused to do so. The Catholic Church, they really liked Parnell. But well, they couldn't because the majority of his followers were Catholic they, and they did not condone and, and they were not able to, they couldn't condone uh, uh, the relationship with the married woman. So they then denounced him. And then the worst thing that could ever happen for Charles Stuart Parnell happened. His tightly knit parliamentary party split in two and the majority of his party went against him. Catherine got a divorce, he married Catherine five months after the marriage. He died in their home in Brighton in England and he was only 45 years of age. When news of his death reached Dublin, his Parnellite supporters rushed up here to Glastonevin Cemetery to find a place to bury him. They went all around the cemetery and his supporters chose the cholera pit to bury their uncrowned king in. Some say they chose the cholera pit because Parnell once said, bury me among the poor. And this was part of the poor ground. Others say they chose it because they knew the anti-Parnellites would never interfere with his grave, being the cholera pit. And others say they chose it because they wanted their uncrowned king to have a circle, the way Daniel the Liberator has a circle on the far side of the yeah. church. I think it's a mixture of the whole three rather than just one. 
but I will tell you, he had the biggest ever funeral right into Glasnevin Cemetery. He died on the 6th of October, 1891. His funeral reached Dublin on the 11th of October. Glasnevin hoped to have him buried at 12 noon, as they would for any celebrity. Well, there were so many people out in the streets of Dublin wanting to show Parnell their last respects that it was six and a half hours later when his funeral reached the gate that's just over there. Parnell was buried by moonlight here at Glasnevin Cemetery. Behind his coffin came his favourite horse and he had called that horse home rule. And Parnell's boots were backwards in the stirrups. It had rained for three full days. Now back in those days you had none of those walls here, none of those slabs there, all for the cremated ashes. Back then you didn't have cremation. And it had, uh, this whole area here was packed with people. And they were weeping and crying and wanting to touch Parnell's coffin. And they were faced with a difficulty. They could not get his coffin to his grave. So they had to do something. And this is what they did. They batten charged the people to get a passageway through for Parnell's coffin. Maud Gone, the woman that our famous poet William Butler Yeats absolutely adored. Maud Gone was here. She recorded in her diary what happened. And she said that as Parnell's coffin went down into the earth, a flash of light from the heavens came down over his coffin. Some people said that was Maud Gone. She was an actress and she was very dramatic. Well, Don't Think Observatory is two miles out the road and it recorded that at that precise moment on that night a meteorite hit the earth. So it was actually the light from the meteorite. And the people who came here, they lingered on here right into the night time. And as they left, they went to the trees and the boundary walls. They took the ivy off the trees and the walls. They placed it in their buttonholes to prove that they had supported Charles Stuart Parnell to the bitter end. As a result, the 6th of October, the day he died, is known as Ivy Day. And look, we have the ivy the whole way around on the railings. That is a chunk of Wicklow granite. He was from County Wicklow, weighs eight tons. And um, it, it's very simple, it just has his name on it, but he wasn't, you know, he was that, that was the type of man he actually, uh, actually was. Uh, Glasnevin gave a promise that nobody else would ever be buried there. Well, would you believe, seven years later, somebody else was buried. And it was his mother who came from such a well-known, wealthy Bostonian family. Uh, her name was Delia Stewart and uh, her father was the famous old Ironside that captured two British ships during the 1812 Anglo-American War. And she died from burns she received sitting by the fire down at their home in Avondale in Wicklow. And uh, she's buried here side by side, not one on top of the other, but side by side with her son Charles Stewart Parnell. Okay, we're going to walk around this way today. I want to show you something around here. Just to mention that this whole area here is associated, all of the, what you're looking at here, the walls, the crosses, uh, the little sort of paving slabs, all associated with World War I. Uh, 200,000 Irishmen went out to fight in World War I. More than 35,000 uh, died in the war. And many of them uh, came home badly injured and died within two years of, of the ending of the war. And many of those men are buried all around Glasnevin Cemetery. And you see those two walls there, that's the World War I wall, and uh, they are collectively remembered on 
this wall here. Between the two walls we have 208 names and on this wall here we have about 168 names and they are all uh, men and women who had served in some capacity in the war and died within two years but mainly dying from their, uh, from their injuries. And there are many interesting stories on that wall because you have stories of families where one man went to fight in the trenches and the other was actually fighting in the 1916 Rising. We have the Nealon family there with one member a Dublin Fusilier and the other member a volunteer. That's the cross of sacrifice. We were the only country in the entire world uh, whose people fought in World War I and World War II and did not have a cross of sacrifice. And again that was due to all the politics of the time. Uh, we got it two years ago, 2014, and it was unveiled by His Royal Highness the Duke of Kent and our own President uh, Higgins. And you see the cross further up there. That is the latest cross that has been unveiled here at Glastonevin Cemetery. And that is a gift from the French government and the French people to the Irish people in gratitude for the part played by Irish soldiers in the defence of France in the Franco-Prussian War, in World War I and in World War II. It particularly remembers the 16th Division. After the Battle of Ginchy, uh, 3,400 Irishmen lost their lives in that. Uh, see the watchtowers over there? We have seven of those around the walls at Glastonevin Cemetery, and they were there uh, to stop grave robbing. It was a huge problem in the early 19th century. There were 16 medical schools in Dublin, many of them anatomy schools, and all of them looking for fresh dead bodies for dissection. The only bodies allowed to go to them were the bodies of executed people. We didn't have enough, of ex enough executions, so if you could rob a dead body and sell to one of those schools, you got the equivalent to two months' wages. If you could export the dead body to Scotland, you got the equivalent to four months' wages. Lots of Irish dead bodies left Ireland in big boxes with Irish cheese written down the side of the box. And they exported them in barrels of whiskey, and when they got to Scotland, they took the body out of the barrel, they sold it uh, to the medical school, and then, do you know what they did with the whiskey? They sold it to the pubs and taverns. Glass and Evans says it never happened here, it's because the guards were in the towers and they, they had uh, guns as well and Cuban bloodhounds and they once the cemetery closed at night they wandered all around the cemetery and that's why Glass and Evan stands up and says nobody was ever taken from our grave. This is the grave of Eamon de Valera and his family and uh, he was born in New York in 1882 uh, of Irish Spanish Cuban background uh, his father, an artist, died when he was two years of age, and his mother, a really young Irish emigrant to the United States, sent Eamon back here to Ireland to be reared by his grandparent, his grandmother, uh, down in Brewery in County Limerick. Uh, he was a smart young man. He grew up to be a mathematics professor, a rebel, a politician and statesman. In 1916 he was commander in Boland's Mill. Now they did not execute him the way they executed the other leaders. Uh, some say it was his American... I'll just let that pass. Some say it was his American citizenship, but let's face it, Tom Clark had an American citizenship and he was executed. Others will say it was that they had begun to realise they were only creating martyrs, so they stopped the executions. During our War of Independence, which begins in 1919, Eamon de Valera will spend a year and a half in, in, in the United States and he will be looking for support for an Irish Republic and he'll be fundraising as well. 
Now he does well on the fundraising, not great on getting the support that he was looking for. That war ends with a truce and a treaty has to be negotiated and Eamon makes the most controversial decision of his entire life when he decides he's not going to go and negotiate that treaty. He gives all his reasons, you know, for not going and that. Uh, and. Uh, but uh, he initially asks a man named Austin Stack to go and he says no and he doesn't really want to go and he asks uh, Cahill Brewer, he doesn't want to go either and eventually it falls to Michael Collins to go and to negotiate that treaty with four others. The delegation was led by Arthur Griffith. He gives them the power of plenipotentiaries but he tells them not to sign anything without referring back first of all. Initially they do that but when they find themselves in a situation faced with the Welsh wizard Lloyd George standing there with a, an envelope in his hand and stating that if they don't accept what's on the table there's a destroyer waiting at Liverpool it will take this message to Belfast and war will break out again they sign for a 26 county Irish free state with dominion status and some of them like Michael Collins will feel will sort of have concerns about that because as he said today I signed my death warrant um, it is brought back and put to Ardoyle, which is, and it is accepted by a slim majority, put to the people, accepted by the people, but there are others who are unhappy and it leads to that civil war. Uh, by the end of that civil war, the Free State has established itself and all of that, and uh, Eamon de Valera leaves Sinn Féin and he forms his own political party, Fianna Fáil. He gets back into power in 1932 and bit by bit he dismantles that treaty. He changes Ireland to a 26-county uh, Irish Republic. Eamon de Valera does not call Ireland a republic at that point in time. He wants to keep the gate open to the north of Ireland. It is J.A. Uh, Costello of the Interparty Government in 1949 takes Ireland out of the Commonwealth and declares Ireland a republic. On that occasion Eamon de Valera attends the Mass but he does not attend any of the other events associated with it. He's the man who wrote the constitution that we use today with amendments. Many will see that constitution as inspiring. Others would be critical of it. Women would be critical of it because of where it placed women in society. It's an interesting constitution. Uh, it's a constitution written by politicians rather than by lawyers. And, it's, and then he's the man who maintains our neutrality in World War II. Maintaining our neutrality was a sure sign of our sovereignty. Uh, this man gave 50 years of his life to the formation of the modern Ireland. He was three times Taoiseach or Prime Minister. He was twice President of Ireland. He's a man who has been much admired and he's also a man who's got some criticism as well. Uh, and he's a man whose leadership has been much studied throughout the world by people like John F. Kennedy, Nehru, Gandhi, and Nelson Mandela and as a result he's internationally known and what amazes international tourists here to Glasnevin is to find that a man of such political significance is buried under such a simple and humble cross. When you look at what Daniel is buried under and look at Parnell, he might be in the cholera pit but it's one huge pit and here's Eamon de Valera who gave 50 years of his life under a tiny little cross. Well there is an explanation. You see here the name Brian. 
Brian was his son. He was killed in a horse riding accident in the Phoenix Park when he was 20 years of age. This is where Eamon de Valera bought the grave and this is where he buried Brian and this is the headstone he put over Brian's grave. I think you'll have to agree it was a perfect headstone for a man who was only 20 years of age. But as time went on and the family moved on, his wife Sinead, the Irish language teacher, writer of mythological stories for children, Eamon himself, other members of the family, they were buried here and they kept the little headstone. It's like as if the de Valera family were saying that if that headstone was okay for Brian, it was also okay for the man who was twice president of Ireland. And um, this is where his son Terry and his wife is buried. We have the other, Rory and Vivian are buried here. And uh, Eamon, the doctor, is buried there and uh, his wife. And in the last grave, we have Emer and, uh, Emer and um, her husband. And they are the parents of one of our TDs today, Eamon O'Grieve. Buried in this grave here is Count Plunkett and uh, his wife, the Countess, and uh, some of the family. But uh, also buried here is a woman named Grace Gifford. Now, Grace Gifford, she was an artist. She studied here in the Dublin Metropolitan School of Art. She also studied at the Slade School in London. And uh, she uh, fell in love. She fell in love with a poet, a rebel, a politician and the military strategist of the 1916 Rising. She fell in love with Joseph Mary Plunkett, the son of those people who are buried here. And uh, when she heard he was going to be executed, she bought a ring here in the city and she headed up to Kilmainham Jail. They got permission to be married in the chapel. Two guards acted as witnesses. After the marriage, she was sent away. She was called back at 2 a.m. in the morning. She was given 10 minutes with her new husband, surrounded by 15 guards, and sent away again. And Joseph Mary Plunkett was taken out and executed at dawn. Grace was both a wife and a widow in the matter of a couple of hours. Uh, she, uh, she, she is, as I said, buried here with uh, the Count Plunkett and Countess. Uh, further up is her sister Muriel. And Muriel, uh, she was the wife of one of the signatories also and one of the executed leaders, Thomas MacDonagh. And a year after his execution, Muriel and a number of the widows, they were out at the beach uh, and they had the flag with them and they were putting it up on the beach and the police were taking it down. And Muriel decided she'd swim out to the nearest island and put the flag on the island. She reckoned the police would not swim out because she felt they would either have to take off their uniforms or swim out in their uniforms. And she felt they weren't going to do either of those two things. And uh, she left at half four to go out. And she hadn't returned by night. And the following day, her body was found. And uh, the coroner's report was that she had died of uh, heart failure. She left behind two orphaned children and it was Grace from here who initially reared those children and in time the Macdonough family. And up here we have another famous lady. Here we have Maud Gone. And Maud Gone, she was an English woman, she was very wealthy, majestically beautiful and she became an Irish rebel. And uh, she came here to Ireland hoping to become the Joan of Arc of Ireland. She went up to Donegal where there were tenant farmers have been evicted from their land up around Glenvey Park where that is today and uh, she soon re she was helping to rebuild cottages from which they had been evicted. She soon realised that women were not welcome into the movement so she set up her own movement in Nina Heron, Daughters of Ireland and she set it up on Easter Sunday 1900. Now that was a nationalist separatist feminist autonomous movement and it was also a movement that had a newspaper called Ban Naharan. Do you know what they said about that newspaper? They said it was the newspaper that the men bought 
to find out what way the women were politically thinking at the time. It was actually a hodgepodge of knitting tips, cooking tips, but the most blatant articles stating that there was only one road forward, and that was through a rising or a rebellion. They say that no other newspaper was quite so blatant. She would have uh, naturally wanted to work towards Irish independence, but she was also somebody who wanted to promote the Irish language and the Irish culture. She had a lot of Griffith's ideas there. Uh, she also wanted people to buy Irish goods and to um, you know, set up Irish industries. She always said, you can wear the fashions of Paris but make sure you make them out of Irish linen and Irish tweed. She also protested against the visits of British monarchs to Ireland. She, opposed, she also protested and campaigned against uh, conscription, and she also looked after the poor of, of Dublin, the children, you know, that they had a breakfast in the morning before they went, went to school. Uh, she probably wasn't quite as big in the area of suffrage as some of the other women around here uh, were. Um, her relationship, she had a relationship and two children with a French politician. That relationship had drifted. And then Major McBride from Westport and Mayo became her knight in shining armour. And you know why? Because he had fought with the Boers against the British in South Africa. Uh, she went to Paris to receive him back from South Africa. They got married and in time the marriage would also drift. Uh, and Major McBride was one of the 16 executed at the end of the 1916 Rising. But before the marriage drifted, they had a son named Sean McBride. And Sean was initially a rebel like his parents. He was chief of staff of the IRA in 1936. He left the movement in 37 when Eamon de Valera's constitution came out because he said he could now achieve things by constitutional means. He became a lawyer and a politician. He was one of the founders of Amnesty International. He was chairman of Amnesty for 14 years and he had the Nobel Peace Prize and the Lenin Peace Prize before he died. Now there was only one other person in the world that had both of those prizes before they died and that was Nelson Mandela. Um, but of course we can't leave this grave without mentioning our renowned poet William Butler Yeats. He absolutely adored her. She was his muse. She inspired the wonderful poetry that he wrote at the time. Now he proposed marriage to her on a number of occasions and she refused each time. And when he couldn't marry the mother he thought he might be able to marry the daughter. The daughter that she had with the French uh, politician. And she too refused. But he still went on to be inspired. And if you know that poem he wishes for the cloths of heaven where in the last lines he says I spread my dreams beneath your feet. Tread softly, because you tread upon my dreams. He was referring to Maud Gone. Well, she actually trashed all over his dreams. And you know what she used to say? She used to say that society should thank her for never having married William Butler Yeats, because he wrote his best poetry while he was pursuing her. And had they married, there might have been no poetry at all. Here we have just to mention, uh, you know, James Larkin's monument in O'Connell Street. There he is with his hands up in the air. And of course, what he's, that's all about the fact that James always said the great are great because we are on our knees let us rise up and James Larkin uh, born in Liverpool into poverty uh, becomes a docker joins the unions and uh, he uh, comes here to Belfast uh, he's a good organiser comes to Belfast unites the Catholic and Protestant workers in the shipyards strikes far too radical for his bosses ends up down here in Dublin uh, setting up the Irish Transport and General Workers Union and in, uh, it was set up in a tenement room in town Zen Street. Um, 
and on that day 1,000 people joined the union and in time 20,000. Now they were casual workers, unskilled workers and workers who could never have organised themselves. He walks among them and he organises them. They get wage increases. The employers are unhappy and uh, eventually 400 employers will come together and lock those workers out who refuse to leave Larkin's union, who refuse to take a pledge not to join it. And that leads us into that terrible, terrible lockout where there were six months of hunger, deprivation, uh, rioting on the streets. The Irish Citizen Army is founded uh, to protect the workers uh, when they're having meetings. It'll later go on and change its constitution and uh, fight in the 1916 rising for a socialist republic. Eventually the workers crawl back to work. They have to accept whatever terms they get. Many of them never get their jobs back. They're blacklisted like Rosie in our cemetery across the road. Uh, now the employers, they win the lockout. Um, but they don't destroy the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. It's still with us today in the form of SIPTO. And his worst enemy during that lockout was William Martin Murphy, who's buried in the O'Connell Circle just beyond the chapel there. So here you get the strangest of bedfellows in Glasnevin. You get the capitalists and the socialists, you know, lying uh, side by side. This is Elizabeth O'Farrell and her friend Sheila Grennan. Both of them were in the GPO in 1916, both in 16 Moore Street. And Elizabeth was the person that Patrick Pierce asked to carry the white flag of surrender uh, with him up Moore Street when he surrendered to General Lowe. Over here, we have the Republican plot and everybody buried in here fought for an Irish Republic. Some fought in 1916, some fought in the War of Independence. And when it came to the Civil War, the majority in here took the anti treaty side. But first of all, I want to point out the Fenians to you. James Stevens, the founder of the Fenian movement, is buried over there in the corner. And here we have John Devoy, the exiled uh, Fenian also. Uh, he was from Kill in County Kildare. And he was one of the uh, five who went on that famous boat called the Cuba when there was an amnesty in 1871 for Fenian prisoners. And he went on the Cuba with four others, including Jeremiah O'Donovan who's here, to the United States. And he became head of Clonagale in the United States. He also uh, wrote for the um, New York Herald. Uh, he's a man who sent home buckets of money to Ireland. Money to casement by the guns, the GAA, and also gave money to Parnell. He's a man who masterminded the escape of six Fenian prisoners from Fremantle Jail in Australia on board a whaling ship called the Catalpa. A brilliant adventure. Uh, and this is Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa. Uh, uh, who was from Ross Carberry in County Cork, born there in 1831. So some of the worst of the Irish famine. Uh, uh, buried his father in a famine grave. And uh, the father died of famine fever. And um, he also saw his, his mother and siblings emigrate to the United States. And uh, he would carry those memories with him for the rest of his life. In his early adult life, he formed the Phoenix National Literary Society. It looks like a book club, but it was a lot more than that. It was a cultural movement, also a movement aimed at getting Irish. Uh, uh, an Irish Republic and uh, when uh, James Stevens in the corner there founded um, his uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1858 he and his society joined that movement he spent many years in English prisons but in 1871 as I said there was that amnesty and he too uh, went on that boat called the Cuba to the United States he lived his life out there and uh, he, from out there he orchestrated a bombing campaign in England a blitz in, in England and he also was involved in that invasion of Canada by the Fenians 
He died on Staten Island in New York on the 29th of June 1915. Now when news of his death reached Dublin, it was like as if all of Tom Clark's Christmases had come together in one. Because Dora, the Defence of the Realm Act had been passed, you could not assemble in public, you couldn't have a football match, but there was nothing about a funeral. And he saw this golden opportunity to bring this famous rebel home and to actually have a massive funeral. And that's what he did. He said to John Devoy, he sent word to John Devoy, send his remains home immediately and we'll whip up enthusiasm. And he asked Thomas MacDonald to organise the funeral and he asked the poet and educator Patrick Pierce to write the oration. Patrick Pierce said to him, how far will I go with this? And he said, throw caution to the wind, make it as hot as hell. The day the funeral came, it was a, it was a really warm day. Temperatures were soaring here. Uh, not in, in Glasnevin, the real weather temperatures. And uh, there were more than 30,000 people gathered here at Glasnevin. All strands of nationalism were here and the authorities were here. And out of the crowd steps this young man who is little known. He's wearing the volunteer uniform. He stands right there and he's looking out this way. And he gives that oration that's gone down in Irish history as one of the great graveside orations. Ends with those words. But the fools, the fools, the fools they have left us our Fenian dead. And it goes on to explain that as long as Ireland unfree holds these graves, Ireland at peace will never be. It is that, uh, it is that oration that decides that Patrick Pearce will be the commander of the 1916 Rising. On that day he walked in those gates. He was little known. He walks out a leader. And the people who came here went back to their homes and workplaces. They talked about what they saw. They talked about what they heard. They took the oration. They printed it. They circulated it and it seems hard to believe. And they went to the cinema to watch it. It was filmed from the side of the church there. And it's hard to believe, but less than a year later, not only has the rising taken place, but 16 of those men are executed, including Pierce. This funeral was a huge propaganda coup for the men planning the rising. But the authorities were here, they saw what happened. So when they executed those men, they made sure of one thing, and that is that they did not get a funeral. They did not want the results of this funeral multiplied by 16. This is the famous O'Reilly, Michael rally from Bally Longford in Limerick a Sinn Féinor with a bit of money and a big car he is shot up around where Lidl is in Moor Street today, shot a second time, he lies dying in that laneway in a pool of blood, he writes a note to his wife and family to say it's all over and that he is dying and the results of that note are actually, are there, what he wrote on that note is now on a plaque down that laneway and they've called the laneway after him, they call it the O'Reilly Parade. So here we are now at the very last grave <coughs> This whole area is owned by the Department of Defence. Not that plot, the one beyond it is the Congo plot, where Irish men who lost their lives in peacekeeping duties abroad are buried. Members of the Irish Army who die in service can be buried there. And here are members of the Free State Army. And you'll see 22 to 23. So you can see many of them died during our civil war. And here we have the commander uh, of the Irish Free State Army, General Michael Collins. And he was born down at Woodfield near Sam's Cross, outside Clonakilty in Cork. Born there in 1890 born into the last 10 years of the 19th century. Now that century saw everything, from the Act of Union to the famine to all the unsuccessful risings. He was born into a family where his father was a, a Fenian, born into a community where his school teacher was a Fenian. There's no question about it, but Michael Collins was bread and buttered on all the stories of injustice and failed risings. In a sense, it's not surprising the direction his life takes. At 16 years of age, he's in London working for the Post Office Savings Bank. His mother dies, his father 
father died when he was six. Hanny, his sister, begins to direct him. She encourages him to join different organisations. He, he joins the GAA, he joins the Gaelic League, and it is that West Cork GAA enthusiast, Sam McGuire, of the Sam McGuire Cup fame, who introduced him into the Irish uh, Republican Brotherhood. He watches events here in Ireland. He's here in 1916. He's aide de camp to Joseph Mary Plunkett in the GPO. He is not seen as a threat. They don't execute him. They don't even send him to the prisons where they send the men that they're actually worried about. They don't send him to Lewis. That's where you went if they were worried about you. Instead, he ends up eventually in Francoch in Wales. Sending Michael Collins anywhere, though was like handing on a plate to Michael Collins all the opportunities Michael Collins wanted. It gave Michael time to think why was every single rising in Ireland a military failure. He soon realises we were never able to dismantle the British intelligence network. That has to become his priority. It gives him time to think about warfare. He wasn't at all impressed by our 1916-style warfare. He instead would go for guerrilla warfare and he would have his flying columns. And it gives him time to assess the men all around him and pick out his intelligence network. During the War of Independence, Michael Collins, with his intelligence network, will take on the might of the British Empire. He will become the most wanted man in the British Empire. There was a price on his head and there was terrible poverty, and nobody handed Michael Collins over to get that money. He could stand with the very men who searched buildings looking for him. They didn't realise this guy were looking for. Safe houses in so many places. He had an important contact in Scotland Yard, in the RIC, and he had his agents working for him in Dublin Castle, the headquarters of British administration in Ireland. He was also very lucky. He had a cousin named Nancy O'Brien. Now she was a really smart young girl and she worked in the GPO here in O'Conn Street and her bosses loved her work ethic and you know what they did? They moved her in to work with confidential material. She spent many of her lunch hours sitting in the bathroom decoding messages that were for Dublin Castle and she was decoding them for Michael and taking them out under her hat in the evening and transferring them into his socks and he'd cycle off around Dublin on his big rusty bicycle. Do you know that he actually took his Kerry Blue dog to the dog show one day, showed him at the dog show, won the award, was given the award by the very people who were connected to the people who were looking for him and they didn't realise this is the guy we're looking for. Michael Collins, through his intelligence networking, through his intelligence activity and through his squad. It is his squad who on that bloody Sunday morning at various locations around Dublin assassinate members of the British Cairo gang. That afternoon you have the 14 die. In the afternoon you have uh you have retaliation in Crow Park when the Crown forces move into the crowd and shooting begins and 14 die. 28 died on that day. In time Michael Collins will make the British government realise that he could make ruling Ireland very difficult for them. But he wasn't just that type of man. He was elected to Ardoyle. He was Minister for Home Affairs. He was Minister for Finance. He had a brilliant head for finance. He's the man who raised the money that would allow that Doyle to operate independently. We're doing so well at the time that the Russian government that just had its Bolshevik revolution applied to Ardoyle for a loan. And would you believe we're able to give them $25,000? Handed over in America, we looked for collateral and we got four of the Russian crown jewels. Given to Harry Boland in America before the Civil War, he gave them to his mother here.
here in Dublin and she minded them under her mattress down in a housing estate down the road in Marino. So this then is the man who's asked to go and negotiate that treaty. Michael Collins doesn't want to do that because in his estimation he brought them to the table. So now why should he have to sit at the table? But as pressure mounts, Michael does what he did all of his short young life. He takes up that challenge and he goes. And together with the others brings back that 26 county Irish free state with dominion status. He describes that as a train journey. He said you're on a train going to a destination, something blocks the railway line. Some people on the train want to know nothing about what has happened. Others want to know everything and do nothing. And then there's the ones that will get off that train and clear that line so the train can go to its destination. It was that idea of freedom towards greater freedom. It is put to the doyle, as I said earlier, accepted by a slim majority, accepted by the people as well. Uh, but there are others who are unhappy. They do say the women played a significant role here. Many women were anti-treaty. Many were connected to the men of 1916. Common Amman was the first organisation to vote on the treaty and they overwhelmingly uh, rejected it. But it wasn't just the women, other things were happening as well as time progressed. Even though there was a peace committee, would you believe, with Charlotte Spard and Maud Gone on it, trying to prevent this civil war, uh, like we were escalating into a war. And then you had, like, say, Rory O'Connor taking over the four courts and the British offering help to get him out. That wasn't at all really helpful. J.J. Ginger O'Connell, he's buried in there. One of Michael Collins' really close associates, the Irregulars captured him uh, and took him hostage and they kept him for a number of days. Like all of this thing was all building up. We were actually escalating into a war. And that war was a real war, and real wars have real tragedies. And Michael was one of those, killed down at Bail Nablau on the 22nd of August, 1922, in his own native Cork in an ambush that only lasted six minutes. And only one person was killed, a 31-year-old Michael Collins. Uh, his remains were brought to Dublin by boat. He lay in State and City Hall. Thousands came to show their respects. And after the funeral, after the mass, the state funeral set out for Glasnevin Cemetery. It went all over the other side of the city out of respect to Michael. And when the first part reached the gate down there, the last part was crossing O'Connell Bridge. There was three hours of a difference. There was three miles of a difference. And he was buried here with full military honours. All of the 17 bands played the Dead March. And 13 tenders carried all of the flowers behind the coffin. There was one flower on the coffin placed there by his fiancée Kitty, who went on and married Major Cronin of the Free State Army, and who called one of her children Michael Collins Cronin, and who said that when she died she wanted to be very close to Michael. So when she died her husband did everything to try and get a grave here, couldn't. It's all owned by the Department of Defence. Her grave is just over there. This is the most visited grave in Glasnevin Cemetery. One tour can only take in a small number at, at a time. I want to say thank you very, very much for coming on the tour. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it.